taking the time to listen to other people and what their world is like. And then it helps others to not take their world for granted any longer. Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. While there are a ton of other leadership podcasts out there on the interwebs, this is the only one solely dedicated to developing undergraduate leaders in numerous fields. We bring in interesting leaders from a variety of disciplines and industries to dish out practical advice for entrepreneurial undergraduates embarking on their professional careers. You'll hear from leaders operating at all levels, CEOs and other C-suite individuals who are at the top of their industries, mid-career professionals only several years removed from their college days, and young leaders in school who are already doing amazing things. We feature leaders from business, diplomacy, education, journalism, engineering, law, medicine, and the sports world. It's all part of our mission here at the Casino Leadership Institute. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. My name is Kai DeJesus, and I'll be your host. Today, we welcome Reverend Forrest Pritchett as our guest. Reverend Pritchett is a former gangster and prolific civil rights activist, even arranging a sit-in in 1961 and getting arrested for it. Currently, he is a professor at Seton Hall University, also working as the advisor for the Diversity and Inclusion Committee for Seton Hall's Pacino Leadership Institute and the director for the university's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Leadership Program. For his achievements, he has won the New Jersey Association of Black Educators, Black Educator of the Year Award, the NAACP New Jersey Convention's Distinguished Educator Award, and the President's Lifetime Achievement Award in National Community Service. Reverend Pritchett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kai. It's my pleasure to be here this morning. So most of the people listening here are students, and I bet a lot of them, especially considering the current times, are lost on what to do to combat racism. So what can a student do to show solidarity to people of color? I would say in one word, do something, <laughs> just to keep it plain and simple. Sitting around and contemplating it won't get anything done. But look, I've been in higher education over six different decades of my life. And I can tell you right now, every decade has been spent doing something about it. There's absolutely no other way of getting around it. This will not go away in a philosophical sense. It's not just about thinking that because we're on the right side of the issue, it's not going to happen. It won't go away because we wish it away. I've just come to the conclusion that it takes an awful lot of, of concentrated work and it takes a lot of allies to come to our, our side. So is there any place for philosophy and introspection in combating racism? I think facilitating discussion, having a point to start with. For example, when you say philosophy, I would say this. Perhaps all Americans need to be reminded of the words of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights which might say that, you know, we all are created equal and we have the freedom of assembly and the freedom of speech. But so often when the, we gather together to develop a critique of how we all are being treated and handled, it seems like some people want to question our patriotism. They want to question our citizenship. I can recall when the Concern 44 was marching and demonstrating on campus and taking over President's Hall. And then some other students who were just observing all of this, simply their response was rather than wanting to know what the issues were about, and I saw this in the Setonian and maybe on public media, some were simply saying, well, if you don't like it here, why don't you simply transfer? 
so that outsiders were taking a very simplistic view of the nature of the critical analysis that was being raised about microaggressions and other forms of racism and sexism being exhibited on campus. And we have to help people to move away from not only their oversimplified views of what it means to be a good citizen and a democracy, but we have to also get more folks to really understand that when things are not right, somebody needs to speak up, whether it's issues of race, class, sex, or religious intolerance, because that's the American way. You know, Martin Luther King once said that when he was criticized for all of his activism, he said that he really understood that under the Constitution, we have the right to protest for rights. So that's how I would phrase that a response for you. Okay. So what can a leader do to be more inclusive and what methods to be inclusive are most overlooked? I would probably go with, uh, number one, we have to constantly be educating everyone around us who does not seem to understand the nature of the problem. So it's about pointing out to folks the like inconsistencies and the difficulties around us. For example, many people may not know this, but when we had the elections in 2016, and the 45th POTUS of the United States was selected. Now, that was a candidate who, during his campaign run, had used misogynist language, had given overtones of uh, racist thoughts, or as some people like to phrase it, he had blown that dog whistle, which is that silent sound that one can't really, uh, only animals can hear, but it was those, those, those phrases which let people know that he had some tones of, he was um, appealing to nationalist segments in our uh, community. He was appealing to some supremacist overtones and supremacist groups. And I believe most, many of his comments were very, very uh, offensive to many women. So I think many people thought that America has come too far. We would never endorse that kind of behavior by electing someone like that. But do you know within the first few days after that election in 2016 on our campus, you know, we had many young women who were being mildly be terrorized by young men. They were being touched. They were being ogled in social media. And it was a very difficult time for many women, for example. So the, the fact of the matter is, I think this kind of behavior makes us look like we really have not matured as a nation. And so I think we all need to be about educating everyone about the fact that uh, now that we live in a global community, let's not, let's help make our nation look a little bit more mature than the kind of immaturity that comes across with this kind of behavior. So what would educating look like? Well, we could do more workshops. We could do seminars. We could help overcome resistance. But for example, on Martin Luther King's birthday, we have now converted that from being a simple prayer breakfast where we bring in members of the clergy to talk about faith perspectives. We've now turned that into an all-day anti-racism training and workshop. We could do a lot more of that. We could have panels of women who could talk about the kind of behavior they are exhibiting. We could get more eyewitnesses and people to give their narratives of what's happening to them in the classrooms. But hearing it from eyewitnesses is probably a very sound approach. 
So what about in interpersonal situations or in places where, like, I guess one could say someone that is not part of a marginalized group trying to educate their friends who may or may not be bigoted or biased? How would you, how would a person on like that level educate their friends or their peers? We could probably call it a, a listening post. We could set up tables in public spaces and on certain days just make it known by putting a sign on the table that stands up on a stanchion so that everyone can see it. That it, this is a listening post on the issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that by sitting at the table, you are willing to listen to somebody to explain their situation. For example, I have learned a lot over the, uh, say, last five to 10 years by making sure that whenever uh, the Muslim Student Association of Seton Hall does any kind of programming, I try to make sure it's compatible with my schedule so that I can sit and listen to how they are being received on the campus. What is their daily life like? I, I would not want to presume that because things appear to be quiet and nice on the campus, that everybody is indeed without difficulties. So by myself sitting and listening, it helps me to monitor what it's like to be Muslim and to travel in their space 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What methods, if any, do you have to unlearn racists' ideas or actions? You said to unlearn? Yes, because I, like, I assume a lot of us have heard, or a lot of the rhetoric that I've heard at the very least, is about how everyone has some sort of racist idea in their head. It's kind of how society is. Do you, or I guess like the question is, though, do you believe in that same thought? And like, how do you fix this? Sure, certainly, certainly. So let me say that I would, what I could say to complement what you just asked is to say the following. I think many people simply take their world for granted. They never question anything. They just want to move through. It's like if you're at Disneyland and you get on a ride, you just want to enjoy the ride. You don't want anybody to interrupt it. So you want to stay on it and have the fun while you can. And when people begin to question what's going on, it's interrupting that ride. And therefore, you know, that gives you great displeasure. So if anything, we have to really continually put into the atmosphere that once again, things are not right. And that we, um, we need people to uh, stop what they're doing, step away from the cycle of their daily routines and take an assessment of the nature of the environment. Because once again, there are different perceptions and different experiences. I often share in that same context, a very simple story from years ago when we would um, put gas in the car. I might indicate that, you know, everybody, when they see me on campus, people may see me wearing a business suit, tie, and they can clearly perhaps identify me as a person of the, uh, even they never met me as somebody who's on staff. But when I uh, pulled my car years ago into a gas station to get gas, I noticed that there are two cars in front of me. And the gas attendant, the gas station attendant, leans into the first car window and asks how much gas they would like. When he puts the hose into the car, he then gets a little squeegee um, device and he begins to clean off the front window. Then the second car pulls up. And he asks how much gas would they like. He puts the uh, hose into the... Uh, gas container, and then he begins to clean off the window. I pull up, 
and he asks how much gas do I want. He puts the hose in and he um, turns around and listens to his music without even thinking about cleaning off my window. Little subtle things that occur. So by taking the time to listen to other people and what their world is like, and then it helps others to not take their world for granted any longer. You know, we most of us are, are on such a, a, a cycle, so to speak, of going to work, getting paid, paying your bills, going home and resting. It's just a, a, you know, a constant routine. And unless we can take time away from that routine to really make an assessment of the atmosphere, uh, not just the atmosphere that impacts you as an individual, but to check in with all of your friends to see how they're doing. That shows that we care and that we can relate to the other instead of being so self-centered. So it seems that most of your thought process comes from listening to others. Where does that come from? Like, how did you develop this sort of theory? Certainly. That is probably as a little boy, just being raised by women who had been sharecroppers in North Carolina, which simply meant that I needed to sit and to listen because whenever I might begin to talk, they might say things to me like, this is not child's business, this is adult business. And so in other words, I had to know my place. And in that context, I also developed a whole set of manners. And, and I also learned a lot of empathy for others because in one sense, I could see my grandmother playing her role. I could see she had four girls. So therefore I had a, of the, out of those four girls, one became eventually my mother. And then I had three aunts. But on the surface, I would never know their stories. But once I sit and hear them tell stories about what it meant to live in a, an area like North Carolina, where from my grandmother, my grandmother worked alongside in the feed, cotton fields with her mother and maybe even her grandmother. So that would have meant that there, were, there would have been three generations of women in our family who were picking cotton together. But the other experiences outside of the cotton field that I wanted to know about, I had to sit and listen in order to pull these stories out because they were not really very willing to tell the stories. So I had to be as polite as possible when I would ask them to share with me what was everyday life like, things they took for granted. I had to sit and be patient and, and help guide them through the process of thinking back on things that they actually did not want to remember. Life was so difficult through the 1920s and 30s in their world, I wasn't even born then, that I had to help walk them through a procedure for them to just talk about things that happened, things they really wanted to forget. For example, I could never get uh, my mother or grandmother or aunts ever to talk about the fact that as I become maybe the age of eight, nine, or 10, I'm noticing that in our family network, there are no older men at all. Uh, they're just mostly women, and then the men that those women would have married. But when I began to raise questions about why, how come there's no older men, no grandfathers, my grandmother was so traumatized by what had happened in North Carolina that she could not bring herself to even talk about it, meaning that literally there are no older men in the family because they all had been killed by the nature of the racist system or maybe they had been run off. But the family were so traumatized that they realized if you talk about those kind of things, that uh, the white people in those areas would come back into your home and either burn the house down or would hurt you. 
but they felt so intimidated that they could not freely share these past experiences. So that's where I had to learn to be empathetic. I could not just sit there and blurt out questions after questions. That would have been highly offensive to them and would have brought up a lot of pain in their experiences. So I had to learn how to be patient and how to just sit and bide my time with them. So I'm Filipino, and at the time of this recording, it's been a week since the shooting in Atlanta or the shootings in Atlanta. Yes. What responsibilities do Black people have to support other communities of color in the face of hate, if any? Well, certainly. I think because we have been subjected to that type of violence and hatred and systemic racism for hundreds of years now, I've often believed that we need to just be there uh, to answer questions for our comrades, also to talk about mechanisms that we have developed within our communities to deal with all of these things. I can remember an example of something that occurred back in the 1980s, where we had Indian immigrants moving into Jersey City, and they were meeting all kinds of resistance from young white males who eventually started, you know, walking down the street to literally with baseball bats and clubs. And anyone that they saw who had any um, markings of the Sikh religion on their foreheads, the little jewels, uh, these young men formed a group called the Dot Busters. And whenever they saw that markings on foreheads, they were cracking people's skulls wide open. In that community, for example, as they felt in terror over the murders that had occurred, they wanted to know what could be done. So we, I was a member, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of some of my awards, of the NAACP, which is the oldest civil rights organization in the country. And those letters stand for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. So we would talk about how to form an organization uh, similar to that, uh, that could begin to monitor, that could be uh, those events, that could begin to talk with the police about providing uh, more protection within communities and about how uh, people could set up a network of notification when they might see people like uh, those outsiders uh, with the baseball bats walking through the community and so forth. So I would say my heart goes out to all of the people of Asian descent throughout the nation, uh, particularly our brothers and sisters in Atlanta. And I'm also going to point out, as you may already know, that really for the last six to eight months in this nation, I believe that violent attacks on people of Asian descent have skyrocketed well above a 300% increase in the last six months alone. So I'm, I'm prepared to, um, even here in New Jersey, to uh, make sure that I can share whatever resources that my network has available uh, to all of those, who, no matter where they are in the country. So even in this answer, you mentioned the prospect of answering questions for people. And I, my question is here, do you ever get tired of it? And how do you combat being tired of it? And that, that's a very honest question, and I hate to be so uh, honest in my response, but there are private moments in which I, uh, I had really hoped. I Seriously, when I was your age, an undergraduate, and when I thought I would pick issues that a number of us upon our graduation from college could develop alliances, and that would maybe within a decade, 10 years, uh, the issues would be over. But as I mentioned earlier, my career in higher education now exceeds six decades, literally, and we're still dealing with it. Here's an example. Do you know throughout the 1960s, as a result of Dr. King and the, uh, the modern civil rights movement, 
we managed to get many different civil rights laws passed and written during the 60s. So most of those laws were written, and I think we were in good shape as we came into the 70s. So then our national civil rights community decided that we needed to turn our attention at that point to um, any other major issue. And the number one issue we looked at was police brutality again. So many of us spent the entire decade of the 1970s putting programming into place, developing community accountability agencies for local police. And here we are again in the 2020s facing the very, very same issue. And that becomes very frustrating. So if a person like myself, I need to rely upon my core value of faith, which just, that, for me, that doesn't mean just going to church on Sundays. It means that during the week, I, week, I have to pray for strength from God because unfortunately America seems to be literally from that perspective, almost a heathen place. Meaning that why in the world would such evil and such sinful behavior continually be repeated. And why is it that when a movement like Black Lives Matter emerges and we're calling attention to all of these young men and women who have been shot down in public view, uh, why is it that more of the public are not outraged about all of this? But on the other hand, then why do they try to demonize the Black Lives Matter movement uh, for calling attention to it? But believe me, I say this in a theological sense, America stands convicted. They are guilty of the sin of racism and the sin of genocide. It's clear. And I actually have thanked God that some electronics engineer at some point had the idea that is putting a camera into a cell phone. Because for what many of us have been saying now for decades, people can now see it for themselves. So while my heart was sad, let's say over the last 12 months, when George Floyd was shot down in the streets and Ahmad was taken down from his little jog, but the fact that the global community could see the absolute immorality of those kind of acts because they were captured on film. So no one really had to describe literally, you could see it for yourself. So my heart became gladdened when I began to see that global response to that racism. People were saying enough is enough. We can see it with our own uh, eyes right now. And this is, uh, it is sinful and it is tragic. And we all stand as witnesses to it at this point. So you just mentioned how we put the, we put the camera on the phone and that's let people see racism firsthand. And you've also yeah. mentioned how long you've been in, in activism. How, has, how else has activism changed in like these 60 years? Oh, certainly. I often remind students of the fact that back in my day, since we didn't have cell phones, which are now smarter than many of us may ever be, <laughs> given the, their electronic memory cells and so forth, and we have smart media, and we have the ability to tape ourselves. Well, back in our day, we had to walk around with pockets full of coins because we, re we, re we re relied upon telephones, which were literally on every corner in America. Let's say there would be a public telephone in every hallway, in every building, whether it was a business uh, facility or on our campus. But that's how we communicated as such. 
So on the topic of listening, I assume that like not everyone has a person of color as a friend to just like ask about these questions to you. So what podcasts or books do you recommend in order to get this sort of information? Certainly, I'll mention at least one source. It would be, and I'll spell this out for everyone. It's going to be the griot.com. So uh, griot is G-R-I-O-T. So a griot is an African uh, concept or term that talks about one, a person who shares verbally, who knows all of the history and knows all of the news. So a griot is one, say, a thousand years ago on a, in a village, but has all of the news and a good word to share with others. But the griot.com would be a very good place just to, find, to monitor daily news and various types of actions. Then I'm also going to probably recommend that our oldest civil rights organization, the NAACP, does maintain a website. And the NAACP uh, really has literally, you might say, two um, areas that it works in. One area is called the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which are all lawyers who spend most of their time in court fighting racist and supremacist groups. Uh, then the other area of the NAACP activity would be the more than 2,000 units we have around the world, local units, local communities. For example, South, uh, South Orange and Maplewood has a, uh, a chapter of the NAACP. But on that local level, those organizations will then monitor all of the uh, neighborhoods. They will monitor all of the institutions within a certain geographical area. Periodically, the people in those groups will be trained uh, by the National NAACP office. But by going to the NAACP.org national website, uh, one could then get a, a, a sense of what that national organization is doing for its more than 2,000 units, which literally are spread around the world. So it seems that we're ending, coming up on the end of our time here. So before we go, I do have one last question to ask, and that's what thought leaders do you follow in the social media or news? I'm going to say I, it's, it's going to be a blend. Not, I, I'm not, I don't limit myself to just the current social media. And I know that may sound a little different than many other young people would answer this, but for the most part, I do a lot of old school stuff, meaning I find the writings and the thoughts of people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who is the first African-American to get a doctor of philosophy degree from Harvard University in the 1890s. I believe his comments, his writings are almost very prophetic, meaning that while he wrote about the 19th century, we can use his thoughts, ideologies, and models right now in the 21st century. So Dr. Du Bois is one of my intellectual heroes, as well as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. But right now I do a sampling. I don't follow any one person, except if I uh, were, I, was, I would mention one a local person who I consider almost the Martin Luther King of uh, New Jersey. And that person is, is Larry Ham, H-A-M-M, uh, who is the uh, president and chairman of an organization called POP. Uh, which stands for People Organized for Progress. And uh, so I would be looking at Larry Ham, and um, because Larry literally is going to be on the streets uh, probably once a week with his organization if something were to happen, if someone were to be killed in Essex County. So in one sense, I, I'm more about following and listening to and monitoring that which is happening 
locally so that it, that's something I can be uh, involved with. That's something I would need to reach out to help and change. I also will have several different news streams that I have coming into my phone because I actually am very busy. And I could say that in, instead of following individuals, I'm more interested in having uh, uh, CBS and NBC and MSNBC and CNN uh, send me breaking news directly to my phone so that I'm in a position to monitor not only what's happening in the United States, but I'm also having the BBC, the British Broadcasting System, and DW, which is Deutsche World, coming out of Germany. They produce news for English-speaking folks, but mostly they bring in uh, information to me from Europe. So in a sense, I almost, I guess you might say, I might see myself as a Renaissance man. I'm interested in monitoring justice and injustice around the globe and around the world. I stay very much tied into a decades of um, alumni from the three different universities that I've worked at uh, because we find ourselves now scattered around the world. So we stay in, in touch and communication. So I'm more focused on not just consuming these like news feeds and what others, I'm, I'm con more concerned and putting my energy into helping others to do something. So it's always about what can I do for you? So we've got alumni out there now who even have graduated from Seton Hall who are in, whose dreams might have been while they were here uh, to eventually one day to set up a health care clinic, be it in Africa or some rural part of America, or making sure they're bringing clean water into parts of India. So those are the um, on-the-ground kind of initiatives when you ask that question. I'm more concerned about getting things done and implementing concrete projects uh, than just consuming that which uh, social media is producing. Okay, so thank you for your time here today. I greatly appreciate the conversation we just had. Thank you, Kai, so much. I appreciate the work that you all are doing in the Bucino Leadership Institute. Thank you. On behalf of everyone at the Bucino Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank all of our podcast listeners, the podcast team, as well as 89.5 WSOU Pirate Radio for allowing us to use their facilities. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership and on Twitter at Shu Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better. <laughs>